and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. I'm John Cole, and this week we'll be talking with Dave Scott of the anti-sectarianism charity Nil By Mouth. Dave will be suggesting some proposals which would, if put into effect, have the potential to reduce sectarianism in the game, but also to fundamentally change the way that football is run in Scotland. I'll also be paying tribute to another historic figure in the game and one of my favourite players when I was a kid, Alan Gulzine of Dundee and Spurs. At the close of yet another remarkable weekend in the SPL, Celtic maintained their unbeaten record and an 11-point gap at the top of the Premiership with a narrow win over Dundee at Parkhead. Hearts and St Johnson each dropped two points at home to Partick Thistle and Motherwell respectively and Aberdeen lost all three in Dingwall. Rangers took advantage with a comfortable win at Hamilton and looked to be confounding the predictions of many, including myself, that they would struggle to be fourth this term. They are now a comfortable seven points clear of the nearest challengers for second place and unless Aberdeen or Hearts get their act together soon, the return of the two-horse race will be back. Killian Inverness also shared two goals and the points at Rugby Park. Despite Rangers' unimpressive early season form, they are slowly emerging as the best of the rest, emulating the Hearts' great start to the campaign last term, and I think that the manager and the players must get credit for that. The astonishing thing about the Premier Division is that there is only a 13-point gap between 3rd place Aberdeen and 12th place Partick Thistle. 13 points. And in fact, there's only 5 points which separate the bottom 7 teams. So there's clearly an awful lot still to play for in the Premiership. In the Championship, both Hibs, who started with new recruit Chris Commons, and in the United, are still neck and neck at the top after an away draw each. Hibs just ahead on goal difference. The talk of the steamy this week has been Roofgate. The suggestion, doing the rounds on social media, is that three stand roofs at Ibrooks, or roofs as some SFMers have suggested, are a health and safety hazard, and that Rangers, with a compliant Glasgow City Council and SFA in tow, are about to allow structural members to fall on the heads of unwitting supporters of both Rangers and visiting teams. I think we need to get a bit of perspective here. Talk of nets being erected to catch falling chunks of roof are nonsense. That would be the equivalent of King Canute holding back the tide with a wave of his hand. It just can't happen. The Rangers board, of course, have already flagged up the necessity of repair to roofs at Ibrox, so I'm pretty sure that there's an issue. But is it a safety one? I, I don't think so. There is no way, in my opinion, that health and safety officials at the council, at civil engineering firms, or even the Rangers board themselves would expose themselves to the criminal, civil and professional consequences of ignoring the safety of fans. Is it possible that there's an old boys network at Hamden who would help their chums out over a Euro licence or three, or even turn a blind eye to car crash accounts? Yeah, I think they might. But not something so f- fundamental as this. Public safety in the full spotlight of public suspicion is something they couldn't dodge. If there is an issue of safety, the stands involved or the ground itself would be closed. And if there is an issue of safety, I'm pretty sure we'll get to hear about it. Nil by Mouth was established in 2000 by David Graham, Louise Cumming and Cara Henderson, whose friend Mark Scott, a Glasgow schoolboy, was the victim of a sectarian murder in 1996. 
The work of the charity includes working in partnership with other organisations, helping and supporting anti-sectarian projects in schools, workplaces and community groups. Dave Scott is now by Mouse campaign director and as well as having a great interest in Scottish football himself, he's leading Null by Mouse campaign to have the clubs accept some form of strict liability. I spoke to Dave a couple of weeks ago. After a few abortive attempts to meet face-to-face had broken down due to scheduling, we agreed to speak on the phone. On occasion, the quality of the sound is not great, but the quality of the many fascinating insights Dave gave us is not in dispute. First of all, Dave, thanks very much for joining us today on the Scottish Football Monitor. And first of all, for any listeners who don't know, could you tell us a bit about Nil by Mouth? Well, thanks very much for having us on, John. It's always a good opportunity to try and speak to football fans directly through podcasts and shows that the you know grassroots fans listen to all the time. Um, no, my mouth is an equalities charity, but we specialise in tackling sectarianism in Scotland. And it was set up after a young man was murdered coming back from a football match uh, in 1995. Uh, his killer had identified him as belonging to a different religious group based on the colour of scarf he was wearing. Um, and a group of his his family and friends set our charity up in his memory of his life, uh, a young man called Mark Scott. Uh, and since since we were formally constituted as a charity back in 2000, we started our life really as, a, as an awareness campaign. That's why we really really started out with the aim of getting people to discuss sectarianism because our, our founder, Cara Henderson, was very much of the view that it was an issue that wasn't discussed properly in Scottish public life. That, you know, it was an awkward issue to bring up. People didn't really want to want to deal with it. And a sentiment that Jack McConnell made in a speech uh, as First Minister back in 2002, I think it was, when he referred to Scotland's secret shame uh, to, to put it in. So, no, by my, th- the big sort of issue, I suppose, to your listeners is, is there's a link between sectarianism and football in Scotland. One in three of all arrests for sectarianism right across the country are related to the game. So that tells us that football has an issue, but it also tells us that football isn't the only place that it takes you know takes place. However, uh, John, this is a very uh, well-known professor and study of uh, political trends and, and, and polling. Uh, John Curtis's organisation did a did a poll, I think, back in 2014, where they looked at public attitudes towards sectarianism, and 90% of people in Scotland attributed football as being the big driver to it. So there's again this big issue between the perception, which people think it's all about football, it's chanting at matches, it's people being attacked, it's high-profile people in football receiving threats, um, and actually reality, which is, yes, football has a problem, but it's not the be-all and end-all uh, with it. So the, the, as ever, the truth is somewhere in between, and because of football's unique place in Scotland, I mean, it's something that's very prominent in Scottish public life, very much, you know, the old um, 20th century Scotland football is the last kind of thing standing as families spread out more, uh, you know, you, you, you've got a right, you know, the, the industrialisation of Scotland and football in many ways is the last kind of bit of social cement that keeps a lot of the old uh, 19th, 20th centuries habits and customs and things alive. So a lot of our work has been about trying to improve the match experience matches, trying to trying to work with fans, trying to bring in changes to law that would see people stop singing sectarian songs. It's important to stress if you apply these things to race, we had hundreds of fans or thousands of fans singing racist songs, you know, action would be, you would quite rightly be taken and there'd be discussions about it. But sectarianism in Scotland, we've too long almost dismissed it as a form of banter where we've casualised it and we, we, we've sort of said that these terms are just part and parcel of the Scottish football experience. And as somebody who, who with my stated life goals is to make all 42 SPFL grounds uh, before I shuffle off this mortal coin and someone who really <laughs> likes Scottish football and all the 
the, the weird and wonderful sort of parts of it. I, I actually think Scottish football is much bigger and better. Indeed, I think both Rangers and Celtic are bigger and better than the majority of fans. So where we are at the moment is we're an organisation that tries to create social change. We work in schools, prisons. Um, you know, we've worked in 23 of 32 Scotland's local authorities. Um, we work with tens of thousands of people every year. And what we're trying to do is get the message out that, look, you can be British, you can be Irish, you can be a football fan, you can be a Catholic, you can be a Protestant. But do you have to do it in a way to antagonise people, to hate people? If, if the only way you can express who you are is by hating other people, there's problems. For, there's all sorts of problems in that. I think what you said there about attitudes uh, that probably rings true for, for most of our readership as well. But the name, Nil by Mouth, it, for me, it implies that you want people to stop voicing sectarian sentiments. The name of Nil by Mouth, we chose the name Nil by Mouth because it's about when you go into hospital. Yeah, of course, yeah. You're giving a Nil by Mouth wristband, but it's about starving the patient, not allowing the patient to uh, you know, to eat or consume anything. Uh, and Cara had the idea that by calling the charity Nil by Mouth, we would stress that we wanted to sort of starve bigotry out of existence. But you had to think about it in terms of, of the language and where it began because there was this sort of widespread acceptance that, that sectarian terms were, were just part and parcel of life and people should expect them. Uh, and the idea certainly was a lot of people when they grow up and well, some of the, we've heard stories of people who who have had you know who've seen adults you know people in their 30s and 40s with you know young kids five or six years old almost teaching them to sing these songs to shout yeah. these songs or hurt abusive people and it's that idea of breaking that cycle that actually if you're an older person you use these words and terminology younger people pick up on so if we think about the language that we're using and the influence that we can have certainly and i know for my part i use language when i was growing up I once used a racist term uh, simply because I went to a football match. I was about nine or ten, and I heard about people using it. Mm. And I remember using it when I got back home, and my father taking a very uh, zero tolerance approach <laughs> to this sort of uh, sort of approach, and trying to highlight the fact that look, this is not the way you talk about people, and just because you hear others doing it isn't the way to go. And indeed, the whole football dynamic. I suppose what the issue is is football is probably the last place where you're going to see hundreds and not thousands of people on occasions still engaging in these old chants and these old banners and these old antagonistic approaches to it uh, and that's the sort of the, the nub of where I suppose football's problem and, and no by most involvement comes we believe that if we think about what we're saying and what we do that impacts on our action I think to, to, to a certain extent the, the, the second part of that question that I was going to ask you was about rhetorical because it's probably my belief as well uh, was is, is it your belief that, that silencing the, the, the voice because you're, you're talking about the casualisation of sectarianism if you silence the voice that you that you effectively suffocate the sentiment yeah yes I think I think it's a key building block for it. It's a key, that, you know, how do we interact with most people? We do it by talking to them and by the words and by the language that we use. And quite often people, I mean, you'll get those who, who, who defend this sort of attitude, pander to these sort of base sentiments, tell you it's just words, it doesn't mean anything. Now, I can tell you from someone who's gone, gone up uh, across the uh, across the RCA in Colton County, Andrum, words, you know, words are where it all begins. You, you know, words are this kind of way that you dehumanise people, you desensitise yourself to how you feel about it, and you actually say to someone, you aren't the same value of me. Now, often people will tell me it's just banter, just a bit of fun. It's never the people on the receiving end who phone me up and say, I've been called a Fenian so-and-so, I've been called an orange so-and-so. You know, it, it, it's this sort of thing that the person who's actually giving the abuse excuses themselves and says, it's just a bit of fun, just a bit of banter. It doesn't mean anything and nobody should take any harm from it. So the idea that actually if we can help people express who they are better, you know, and I'm, I do stress that we're yeah. not saying to people... I'm not advocating people running down a street with tambourines singing Kumbaya. I mean, we're, we're realistic about things. You're never going to have that environment in football. Football 
um, there's a certain pantomime around football and there's a kind of there's a passion um, but there's also a poison that has creeped into it and sometimes particularly you know with, with the old firm fixture we have seen it down the years where about the best in people you know that there are too many people who who take it that step just, just too further but what's also important to stress is also tens of thousands of people just go to watch a game of football and don't like losing to the rivals so the challenge I think for organisations such as Melbourne Mouth is to try and make decent football fans aware to give actually a voice to them to give them a kind of chance to say look this is the type of match day experience you want to have you want to sing your songs of pride and passion but you don't need the poison and the bigger drain to it so Nobody Mouth I suppose is about actually giving a voice to the silent majority of people who go to Celtic Park who go to Ibrox who go to Douglas Park who go to football matches who just want to watch the game and sometimes that's going to have to mean they're going to have to have structural changes to how football does business because for a long long time in Scottish football we've just hit we've, we've run away from it we've hit under the under under the bed and not wanted to confront this issue at all. There's never been a pound or a point deducted from any team in Scotland for sectarian behaviour. Uh, and that's something that we've been campaigning to change in recent years. Which brings us to the purpose that I asked you to join is, which was about the issue surrounding strict liability for clubs and the, the clubs being held responsible for the behaviour of their own fans. Um, is it your belief that, that strict liability is uh, something that would be helpful uh, in, in terms of your goals? I think strict liability would be helpful to it's, it's important to stress it's not a, it's not a magic bullet strict liability won't solve all the problems and, and I wouldn't punt it as that what we have at the moment though is a no liability culture where clubs will turn around and say look we've done all that we can and, and they clear themselves and the, and the very peculiar structures that govern Scottish football there's not a great deal of transparency around that how these decisions are made and how they're reached and we believe strict liability is a footballing solution to the problem in the sense that it has been used by UEFA uh, during the Champions League and Europa League and the European Championships. And what it does is very quickly, uh, it sort of highlights what is sport, what is discrimination, what is public, what, what belongs in, the, in that in that sort of arena. So it has actually been something that has been used. Uh, it's, it's used every season in matches in Scotland. And indeed, uh, both Rangers and Celtic have been on the receiving end of fines for the behaviour of fans. It just doesn't govern at the same time things such as sectarian behaviour, it can cover racism and vandalism, it can cover flares, um, it can cover a whole a whole gamut of things. And what we're hoping to do in Scotland is, if not necessarily adopt the exact UEFA principles about it, we can actually come up with a Scottish form of strict liability which recognises the dynamic in Scotland and certainly there's going to be efforts in the Scottish Parliament uh, James Dorn, who's a backbench MSP, is bringing forward a, a private member's bill, which is something that is brought forward by an individual member rather than a political party or a group. It's brought forward by someone, you know, for, for parties to, to, to vote on. And what we would, the, the big difficulty we find is, is when, if you reflect on, on the most recent controversial issue in, uh, in Scottish football, the cup final and the issue with that, when the report was published, the SFA pretty much turned around and said, we can't do anything without strict liability. And sometimes, when I am a fan of Scottish football, we, the SFA and the SPFL very often become human shields towards the clubs. And just let's not forget, it's the clubs that drive these things. It's the clubs that are members. Mm. And sometimes chief executives are put up there almost as, as, as human shields. Now, I, in the SFA, I think Stuart Regan left his own devices would do it. I don't think Neil Doncaster, the SPFL, would do it. Um, I, I think he, he feels uh, he's quite overwhelmed by it all and very much out of his depth when it comes to discussing these sorts of issues. I think the problem is that the voting structures and the mechanisms that are there require clubs to do it, which is why in 2015, when a vote was brought forward, it really was properly discussed. It kind of tagged on it and, and, and the clubs sort of voted it down. Subsequent to that, Dr. Duncan Morrow, who's a world-leading academic on sectarianism, 
did an independent report across Scotland over three or four years, the most impressive bit of research ever about the issue, which included a lot of things for even organisations like Nobel Mouth. Think about, you know, there were aspects of the report where, where, where he was actually asking us to step up the things or rethink things. So there was a lot of things in that report for everyone to think about. And his group recommended the adoption of the European sanctions. And his, his final closing line in that was, look, if it's not strict liability, then what? And we didn't get anything brought forward with it. What we had instead was some really back of the cigarette box thinking uh, in terms of facial recognition software. Uh, and again, you had a situation where, where they actually wanted public money to be invested to do this. And the public money issue to us is also very important, John, because football can be a, a really positive. I, I, I live down the borders. I go to watch Gallifrey and Rovers, my local team, and they do some fantastic stuff with a little bit of money down there. And they have a, a 3G arena. Kids going out every night, learning sport, you know, learning new skills. It's fantastic. Football fans are training, supporters direct, all these things, really positive initiatives where football steps up to the plate with public money and delivers and things. Now, when it comes to sectarianism, football is found wanting each and every time. So a social problem that football is very much involved in, football doesn't want to be there. And yet the issue is they turn around and say, we don't want government interference in what happens in football matches. Well, <laughs> It's very, very hard to say you don't want government interference when you're turning up to collect millions of pounds worth of checks, uh, you know, as a football club uh, in terms of things such as cashback for communities or different sort of government programmes. So what I feel is too often in the past, Scottish football has been the first in the queue for, for, for a check if it's attached. But when it comes to actually accepting responsibility itself, Scottish football will not do it. It has shown itself incapable of tackling sectarianism, of dealing with it. Um, and, until, and, and that has impacts for wider society. That has impacts in terms of the tensions that are raised, the problems that come with it, the policing costs, uh, the a the, the admittances that you find after a lot of sort of games. You know, there, there, there is a social, real social cost for what happens in football grounds. And what we would like to try and do is work with fans and work with the clubs themselves to actually create something that, that makes things better and to give... Uh, a voice to the silent majority of fans. And I, I believe that the majority of people who watch every football team in Scotland are good people. They're not sectarian people. They're interested in football. They might vote a certain way. They might have a certain religious belief. They might, you know, that they might have a certain political dynamic, but they're not necessarily, they don't hate people. They don't hate their neighbours. Now, sometimes there's a particular poison has attached itself onto the old firm game. Uh, and while sectarianism isn't unknown in other kind of grounds and other things, that game doesn't bring out the best in people. And certainly I know, um, know by mouth how often we would get TV companies, I mean, CNN, Russia Today, Al Jazeera, we're all in touch last year trying to do sort of pieces uh, about the old firm matching. You were trying to say to them, look, it's not particularly helpful to cover these things in this way and to sensationalise. We've got to try and think about how we, how we punt it. But to some people, there is something in the fabric of that particular fixture that that that, that transcends a footballing rivalry. It's it's it deeps into people's culture, their sense of identity, a sense of us and them, and it is more than a football match to those people. And to some people, they just take it a step too far that they have to say that football match is a, is like a proxy for some sort of quasi-religious political uh, conflict or a chance to get one up on them. And that that you know, I mean, I, I do a lot of work in schools, and one of the things we would do in primary schools is try and challenge negative perceptions of football fans because it's amazing how many young people view Scottish football fans or fans of certain clubs in really negative ways. Yeah. And we spend a lot of time trying to say, you know, we, we give you an example. Uh, can you draw me what a 29-year-old Rangers fan looks like, what a 45-year-old Celtic fan looks like? And they're not very flattering. <laughs> you know, they're normally quite aggressive and abusive. And then we'll show them people like Amy McDonald or Jared Butler, you know, people who are good 
good football fans, world-renowned, really represent Scotland well. So uh, there's an education job to be done uh, as well as strictly building this way, John, and we would like to try and, and work with the clubs where we can, but unfortunately the clubs just seem hell-bent on locking us out of things and not wanting to take on progress. There's, 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 there's a theory, um, Dave, that, that, um, that as far as the attitudinal side of things go, is that if you apply sanctions to fans or, or to clubs if their fans engage in sectarian singing or, or, or other behaviour, that very quickly the, the majority, the vast majority of decent fans would make that sort of behaviour unacceptable. And that, and that perhaps even within a generation you could help to eradicate it across the country as well because where it gets the, the, the opportunity to breathe is, is it football? Would, would you agree with that or do you think it's maybe over-egging the pudding a bit? That's a very aspirational kind of way of looking at it, John. I think that's a very optimistic way of looking at it, and I'd like to see it that way. Um, you, you know that you can have. I mean, we have seen. Well, I do stress. I mean, there'll be fans listening to this at home uh, of, of, both, of both sets of uh, you know fans sitting going, you know, I go to matches. I've never sang this or chanted that. I don't know. I mean, I know. Yeah. I know. Sometimes we do radio and TV things. I can almost hear people going, "But that's not me. You know, that's not that's not my club. That's not what I believe, and that's not who I am." And, and we, we totally understand that. And I think what what most fans would like to do is have an environment where the football becomes focus and too often it becomes something very different. You have fan groups who almost seem to see themselves as a special breed of fan above the rest of us. And they, some of them, they measure it in terms of the amount of invective that they can spill on people and, and this sort of concept of what is a Rangers man, a Celtic man, these kind of things. And I, and I think a society has evolved and moved on and there has been a lot of changes. I mean, you know, the battle against sectarianism is one we're winning in Scotland. I wouldn't want to overstate the problems with sectarianism in Scotland. And actually, over the last 20 years, we have seen progress in tackling um, you know, sectarianism in football. That hasn't been driven by football. That has been driven by people outside pushing and wanting to do it, be those supporters, be those individual people, be that newspapers, be those parliamentarians, be them pressure groups, be them events. You know, football is a very conservative thing in Scotland. It doesn't want to change. It reminds itself things. It's always put it on this way and football governs itself better. So I actually believe, but there is a challenge then for organisations such as that we have to actually connect with these good, decent fans and actually, look, we're on your side. What is it you want to do? What is it you want to change? How would you take this problem on? Which is why when we're in the whole big discussion of strict liability, and this will be a discussion that goes on over the next three months, there's been a consultation announced to Parliament to discuss it, with the backdrop of all the things over the Offensive Behaviour Act and various things. What is, how do football fans want to tackle this behaviour that goes on in the ground? It's certainly not my belief that they want to tolerate it. They don't, you know, I, I don't, I've yet to meet fans who say that this stuff is perfectly acceptable, this stuff's what we want, this is what we want to be associated with. So we have to then ask ourselves, how do we work with you to give you a match day experience that you enjoy, that matters to you, that actually means you can support your team without hating people? And we've seen some wonderful things done in recent years, a fantastic interview I heard with the two oldest uh, old fan season ticket holders. One was 102 and one was 96. Yeah, and, so... Uh, another broadcasting outlet, as I know, no one gets free publicity in this game. They you know, ran a fantastic uh, interview with the two of them. And these two guys sat and talked about the history of their club, feared opponents, uh, big European nights. Sounded like they couldn't have enjoyed everybody's company more. And that's where you want to get to. You also want to bring the fact where, I mean, quite depressing thing is often I talk to people who said, no, I started going to football and then I stopped because my son asked me, what is an orange? What is a thing? What, what are these things? You know, what, and the child was sort of, how do you as a, as a parent try to explain to a child 
why people are singing these songs and what they actually mean and why is somebody wanting to up the knees in my applaud? Why is somebody celebrating the Ibrox Stadium disaster? Well, you know, well, why why are people going out of their way to be antagonistic towards it? And sometimes I just think it's sometimes it may be a case of the Scottish strict liability model. Maybe we we treat it not so much as a uh, as a court, but maybe something like a health and safety or a licensing sort of board. Because if you have examples, if you run pubs and clubs and there's there's just disorders spilling out of it, there's, there's all these sort of bad incidences, arrests. The licensees brought in before the committee and actually asked questions about what they're going to do. They're given recommendations. We don't implement them. Steps up and sanctions are taken. Then we can make football something like that. We can actually have a strict liability board, which we would like to see separate of football. We wouldn't like football to appoint that, but we would make sure football would have to enforce it. So we would encourage the government to select a group of ag experts and group of people who actually try these sort of cases and then their you know decisions are made are made in football. So we don't feel it should be something that football decides who gets in to do it because Scottish football is very small, it's very conservative, everybody knows each other. Um you, you know, you need to have something independent of yeah. both. So and I know by my solution we would like to see an independent commission that would hear these these cases that were tried that recommend changes. So maybe the first case is a matter going to the club and send it and there may also be instances where the club, you know, there's one or two people who behaved in a really bad way, and you look at it and say, well, look, there's one person who's behaved in an idiotic manner. What sanction have you taken about that person? Now, if it may be a case of a season ticket, um, you know, you, you you ban them from the ground, you, you take a public prosecution against them, as has happened in Germany, you know, in cases where individual fans have been prosecuted for things that have cost uh, clubs uh, money. But maybe the sort of the problem also, and the offensive behaviour bill was actually a piece of legislation the other mouth didn't support because we actually felt. The research wasn't done there, and, and the events of 2011 led to legislation passed that was too healthy. And if you go back and check mm. the history books, I mean, quite often people will phone me up and say, well, why would you defend the offensive behaviour bill? I'm not sure I would, because at the time we actually tried to send the government, strict liability might be a better solution for you. You might be a better way of going. And also what it does is it tries to tackle the group mentality. So uh, under an individual legislation, you can arrest one person for a behaviour. How do you arrest 500, 600 people who champion these songs? Mm. You can't do that. But if you close a section of the ground, then they all can't go to the match next time. Mm. And, you know, or if, if perhaps there's a possible sanction of, I mean, another recommendation that Duncan Morrow made was actually anti-sectarian, anti-racist initiatives being funded by the clubs, which is important to stress. When you see something done in an anti-sectarian river the football match, the clubs aren't paying for that. That's been paid for by the taxpayer. And, you know, so the clubs themselves don't invest in these anti-sectarian, anti-racist things. On occasions, they will let charities such as Schwarzen and their card come in and, you know, they'll help them out with things in kind. But they don't actually fund them. They don't pay any money into them. David, so there's also the system. Sorry, David, to, to interrupt, but it, but it sounds as if um, that, that you trust the fans more to be progressive about this than the clubs. Well, I, I think that, the, the, I mean, the, we, I think the events of 2016 tell us anything. If like up is down and down is up, I think things have been turned on their heads and so often. And what you often have is a lot of fan supporters trust you, the supporters trust, uh, group movement. Fans certainly have great influences in the boardrooms and we've seen a lot of campaigns at, at, club, at both the old firm clubs where, where fans have put their energies into trying to you know, remove shareholders they don't want to see, see policies such as the living wage and various things introduced. So fans can flex their muscles in a certain way. The problem then also is, the big issue is, you have certain fans who shout louder than everybody else and they then automatically, I think, think that that makes them the moral custodians of our sporting club. And I think they turn around and think because we shout the loudest, we represent the kind of needs of it. So yeah. you're, in a, you're in two stadiums, 50,000, 60,000 people. Very hard to get one sort of unifying voice there. People have all different sort of attitudes. So what you kind of get is one of the problems I think we find, I've certainly encountered when we tried to deal with 
the, the various the old firm club supporters trust is that quite fractured you know, there's three or four different kind of trusts and affiliate groups even within those clubs yes take for example the relationship that people have at hearts i mean the foundation of hearts ended up saving their football club it gave them a big share in it they brought Anne budge on board and she's putting a lot of very positive things you speak to those heart supporters they're very very supportive of what she does because <coughs> she informs them she talks to them she asks them questions when there is disorder and they had issues i mean they've had issues at hearts with crowd disorder she actually gets in touch she works out we're going to spend more money on you know security we're going to have to pay more things she sort of highlights the fans and says look if people don't behave properly there's a cost there. how you as a football club owner and how you as a, as a custodian of a football club actually deal with the fans and how you talk to them those aren't mugs anymore the internet Twitter I mean even I mean, 20 years ago John we would have been discussing things like this on shows like yours of course we wouldn't we'd have had reliant fan things which probably only bought by fans of one supporters club you know now people have different platforms and different ways of communicating and sometimes, of course, the internet can be a negative thing, and particularly in our work, you know, sectarianism on the internet, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a very bad bedfellows. But actually, it gives fans a way of connecting, talking, sharing ideas, groups like Supporters Direct, um, Scottish, the Scottish Football Supporters Association, all these kind of things. These are opportunities for people who are really passionate about their clubs to come together and do things. So, yes, I actually say, do trust the fans indeed. Well, it's not necessarily something that, by mouth, we, we do a lot of work out with football. Something myself as an individual who's worked close to it, I would actually want the supporters trust representative in every committee of the SFA. I think there's lots of things that happen that should be opened up to the supporters, the customers, you know, the, the people who are the, the, who are the real guardians of the club. So there's a whole lot of democratisation can take place um, in Scottish football. And I, and I think Scottish football realises now that the Scottish Parliament over the last 20 years uh, has put a lot of focus on it. And, and there's no going back to those ideas of players making decisions and there's nothing else here to see. So we've had instances here where Scottish football has failed to tackle sectarianism and people have called them out on it. People have pushed them on it. You know, you're talking to me about this politicians are putting legislation through and that doesn't always, they don't always get it right. I mean, it doesn't give a politician a monopoly on wisdom. But the fact of the matter is football is not above the law. When you go into a football match, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, you have 90 minutes where you don't behave like a human being. This idea you're a 90-minute bigot, well, can you be a 90-minute racist? You know, mm, the, this yeah. sort of concept that we say to ourselves, that when we go into a football game, the laws of the land, the laws of decency, treating people properly, that doesn't matter. That's disappeared because it's football. And I think football needs to come around to realising that actually... <laughs> It's not the biggest, you know, uh, fish in the, in the pool anymore. You know, Scottish football's in a bad way internationally. Um, you, you know, the, the, there's been a real lack of leadership right across the game over the last ten or fifteen years. And if it wants to get it back, and even indeed, I mean, the Henry McLeish report, what that all come down to? The government to give us money, government to interfere, government to pay money into things. A couple of weeks ago, Harriet Watt University, a national performance centre, set up twenty million pounds worth of cash. Camden itself paid for uh, by national lottery money, yeah. a public contribution. Football has had millions, tens of millions of pounds of public money put into it. We feel that football can take a real positive role in tackling sectarianism and getting the message out to, to people all across Scotland. You know what? Football's not, sectarianism's not, it's not welcome here. Football's about the sport, it's about the games, but who you are, it's not about hating people because they're different. I think if you look at the, the, the constituencies uh, who, who are involved in this, you're, you're talking about the fans, you're talking about the Scottish government uh, in this case and, and, and the clubs. And I'm not trying to sensationalise it at all, but it, it does seem to me that the message that's coming across from you is, is that the clubs are, are the real sticking point, that conservatism. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that is 
possibly, I don't know whether you would agree, but is, is that possibly as a consequence of something you just touched on, which is that that kind of a innate 19th century mentality that exists within boardrooms throughout the game? And I mean, there's a lot of good people do work at, you know, football clubs. And, and sometimes I'm mindful, we launched a campaign last year called Kiss Bigotry Goodbye, which is about, it's an image-driven thing about taking pictures of the things we love about football. We work with a wonderful uh, sports writer, Daniel Gray, and he wrote all the, you know, these fantastic books about Stramash and about tours around Scottish football. Yeah. It's all about meeting fans. And we went from Selkirk to, to West Lothian. We, we went to Glasgow. We went to Ash. just talking to fans about what they wanted to do with football and taking all these sort of images of the things that they loved. There's a lot of people that really love the game, but the issue in Scotland always has been there's a certain football just seems to have a healthy conceit of itself in Scotland. I think Scottish football really needs to wake up or die. There's so many things wrong with Scottish football, all of which stems from that lack of consultation, that lack of inclusiveness as far as the fans are concerned as well. That's that's certainly been been our belief. But but in, in general, about the sectarianism issue in itself, are you optimistic about the future? Absolutely, yes. I think what we have to make sure that we do is as we move forward in the future, we have to make sure fans are involved. I don't think things can be high-handed. I think you have to work with fans and explain to them why you're doing things. And it may be a case that we would we would put our case to maybe 42 different groups of season ticket holders and think, well, that's not the right move for Scottish football. But at least we've had that dialogue and at least that idea is there. So I'm optimistic in terms of tackling sectarianism, but the problem is if it's given four or five years where it just goes on the down low and back burner and people just shrug their shoulders, we fall back into that whole casualisation idea, which is just the way it is. It's just yeah. the way things have to be. And I can see changes in this. I, mean, I also see changes in terms of we would go, we do things when we're in primary schools and last year we were over 150 primary schools last year over 10,000 pupils and we asked them to look at an identity map and we asked them about the football team the support and the religion just the sort of idea but we want to show them that look football identity or your food you like music you like you know, there's just one part of who you are and you shouldn't define people by any one of them yeah. and what was quite striking was the amount of young people who aren't supporting Scottish clubs now they were supporting Barcelona supporting Real Madrid oh, yeah, you click a couple of buttons on an app on your phone and you're watching some of the best players in the world play mm-hmm. Barcelona and Madrid there's actually a danger that people will much rather save up for a trip to go over to the Now Camp or you know a, a, a trip down the road to a, an EPL club than actually go to watch Scottish football so attendances will be declining and that now personally for me as someone who genuinely I, I love Scottish football I'm up in the 23 of the 42 grounds I want to go and see them all that would make me very very sad you know that would really sad me that if because football in Scotland refused to change that that you know that, that a group of young people would I mean you look now in Scotland you've got so many you've got Ricky Burns the boxer highly successful Andy there's other alternatives for people you yeah. know you know the cycling team people football doesn't hold that I mean, we, we often lament it when you go out you don't see people playing football in the street or things anymore there's so many different demands on their time so when I'm optimistic with tackling sectarianism I actually feel by, by, by lancing this boy and making the effort to introduce things as a strict liability you can actually encourage people to come back to matches you, know, you can encourage them to come back in and do things so I think with some sensible changes with football working with us rather than against us and realising most importantly of all that it has to listen to its fans and involve fans in decision making I think this is a generation which does away with it once and for all Well I have to say Dave that it's been a pleasure to talk to you but I don't wish to end on a down note but we wrote to every single football club in Scotland and we contacted you and we contacted the Scottish Government 
and only you and the Scottish government replied to us. Now, whilst we don't expect everybody's going to jump whenever we send them a letter or an email, it does say something about the fact that, that, that this whole thing has, is treated by the clubs as a kind of hot potato. And uh, and hopefully the, this uh, chat that, that we've had, along with uh, the chat that I'm hoping to have with the Justice Minister, might put a wee bit of pressure on the football clubs to move. As far as I know, they, uh, they, they're supposed to be reporting back with some proposals uh, on strict liability to the Scottish Government was supposed to be by the end of November but we haven't heard anything yet I don't know if you're privy to any of that discussion I suspect what you'll probably hear is a bit of a shuffling of the deck chairs yeah. uh, I think we'll sort of talk about tightening up and I mean, let's not forget f- football I mean I, on the past when I've dealt with the SPFL well, I must admit it's a very unimpressive organisation but I don't think it's a great infrastructure there but when you deal with them um, you, you know I remember 2015 they've been in since about which we, we chased it up with them four weeks later when they said there was a meeting and they didn't answer they just didn't answer the emails we actually wrote the clubs last season saying to them why don't you just oh, we, we don't want you to do strict liability but just write to your fans and ask them what they think not a single football club in Scotland responded to you. But you can turn around and say, this is a small charity in Glasgow, we don't have to listen to them, we're big football yeah. clubs. But the world's changed. You know, if, you, if you look at the, the events, think of where we were 10 years ago, think where we are today, think of all of the political things, all the things that have changed, how the landscape of the world and Europe and Scotland has changed. The idea that Scottish football can, can, can just sort of keep, you know, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil, and this goes away, it's not going to happen. And it has two options. One, it can either manage its own dismount and it can actually show some leadership and the clubs can turn around and say, we're going to take this on. Or it can just, it'll basically get to the point where governments or supporters groups or, or you know, will just take their own sanctions, be that through licensing laws in terms of how the mm. things are licensed, or just the fans just stop turning up. So that's where the start is. I think this, the choice is quite stark for the club, which is it's the 21st century and you've got to get in it. And you can't just come up with these cock and bull proposals about things like facial recognition and all these things, which actually involves, you look at the whole facial recognition fiasco, it actually involved them asking the government for millions of pounds worth of money. Yeah. You know, so ultimately, when is football going to take responsibility? We've seen some great programs. Fans and training is one which is a brilliant day. I'm sure you've covered that. Brilliant about about using football clubs as your positive locuses, all paid for with public money. So football steps up and says, if there's a social problem, we can help. But in Scotland, a social problem that contributes to sectarianism, it's always the last in the line when it comes to responsibility for that. And that has to change. And if it doesn't change, I think they'll find they're in a situation that events will overtake them and change will be forced on them. Well, I, I definitely think that to, to be able to end on a positive note, uh, I was I was talking recently to Paul Goodwin of the Scottish Football Sports yes, Association. No yeah, and, uh, and and I believe that they're putting out a questionnaire next year <clears throat> to all football fans. I think they've got 65,000 members at the moment. And, uh, and one of the questions they're going to be putting, hopefully, to their members is, do you agree with strict liability? And that may hopefully have a positive of impact and in, in how the clubs respond but Dave it's been, a, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thanks very much for giving us your time today and and I, and I hope we can speak again sometime soon thanks very much John Merry Christmas as I alluded to in the interview with Dave SFM did contact every senior club in Scotland for their views on strict liability I also contacted uh, the Justice Minister Michael Matheson we got no zero replies from any of the clubs although we did get a reply from Michael Matheson's office to say that whilst they were waiting for an indication of the club's reaction to calls for strict liability, he would not be able to say very much at this time. After a wee bit of lobbying, uh, sources close to the Justice Minister suggested to me confidentially that the government were frustrated at the delay and the lack of urgency inherent in the club's failure to respond. 
I'm sure that most of us agree that the SFA would be a better place if somebody like Dave Scott was actually in charge. The overwhelming impression that I got from that conversation is that Anne Burgess' approach to fans, that of inclusiveness, harnessing the skills and passion of the fans, is a far more progressive one than the conservative same old of the daily mantra served up at Hamden. A lack of leadership, unimpressive organisations with officials out of their depth, the sham of the independent inquiry, SFA hunger for public handouts while taking no real public responsibility, all too familiar. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. Now it really is time that the Scottish Government stepped up to the plate in this matter. Hopefully the Justice Minister's frustration will be the catalyst for action. And soon. And now just before we go. Just before we go, I want to mention a boyhood favourite of mine, the Dundee in Scotland centre forward Alan Gulzine. When we talk of Scottish football greats, the Johnsons, the Baxters, Bremners and Laws are usually the first to be mentioned, but Golzine was more than comfortably in that company. A strong runner in the Bobby Charlton mould, with a powerful shot on either foot, and a keen football brain, Golzine was a peerless header of the ball and a constant goal threat. He was a prolific goalscorer for Dundee, scoring over 100 goals before heading to Spurs in late 1964. At Dens, he was part of the great championship side of 1962, which reached the semi-final of the European Cup the following year, losing out to AC Milan. Astonishing to think that both Dundee teams have been in the semi-final of Europe's Premier Tournament, and both losing out narrowly to Italian opponents. When Golzine left for Spurs in December 1964, shortly after the tragic death of his friend and Scotland teammate John White, he turned down more lucrative offers to play for Sunderland, where Jim Baxter joined up soon after, and from Torino. He was hired to replace the legendary Spurs and England centre-forward Bobby Smith. At White Hart Lane, Gilzine teamed up with Jimmy Greaves to be part of arguably the London club's most revered ever double act. When Greaves left in 1970, Gilzine buried in England international Martin Chivers, and an equally famed partnership was born there. In London, Allen won the FA Cup in 1967, the League Cup twice in 1971 and 1973, and the inaugurable UEFA Cup in 1972. Celtic fans will feel the pain he felt at being in the losing side in that competition again to Fiennard in 1974. Gilzine's balding pate is the stuff of iconography. I can remember a school chum who was a Spurs fan who had a paper Gilzine mask he used to wear in moments of delusion. But the time he came to my attention was the occasion of the first live TV match I ever saw, Scotland versus England at Hamden in April 1964. Still a Dundee player at the time, I was enthralled by the big lanky centre forward who majestically headed home a Davy Wilson corner to cap a wonderful personal display. The team that day would make you cry. Campbell Forsyth was in goal, won the championship the following year with Kilmarnock, eh, and then went in 1966, I think, to Southampton. Alex Hamilton, or Hammy, eh, was right back, and he was Golzine's club captain at Dundee. A great full-back and one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever had the pleasure to meet, and I was lucky enough to do that when I was very young. Jim Kennedy uh, of Celtic, or Prezi to his friends, uh, a man who would have crawled over broken glass for his team. 
John Gregg, number four, or right half as we used to say. Big Ham and Egg, the Rangers captain and the scorer of arguably the most famous Scotland goal ever two years later in a match against Italy at Hamden in a World Cup qualifier. Billy McNeil, well, uh, Jim Baxter, no further introduction needed for those two. The number seven and number 11 were both from Rangers, Willie Henderson and Davey Wilson, and two of another clutch of wonderful Scottish wingers. I've spoken to Jim Craig about uh, about things like that in the past, and he thinks that Davey Wilson was probably a more difficult opponent than Willie Henderson, but then again, Tommy Gemmell was usually up against Willie Henderson playing for Celtic, and Jim was usually up against uh, Davey Wilson, so I suppose he would say that. But there's no doubt that both of them uh, were fantastic, great footballers. Number eight was John White, a gifted player known to Spurs fans as the Ghost because of his tendency to arrive unannounced in the penalty box in the end of a move. Uh, he was the jewel in an already glittering Tottenham crown in 1961 when they won the double. John died tragically uh, playing golf. He was struck by lightning after taking shelter under a tree during a shower in, I think, late summer in 1964, shortly after this particular game. Alan Golzine, of course, was number nine, the centre-forward, and his 78th minute header was the first goal I ever saw on the telly. Uh, Dennis Law, or the lawman, as Pat Crern would famously call him, a panda of a striker, and for me, the Ron Stewart at the soccer pitch. It would make you weep to think that those were guys who were playing for Scotland within living memory. All of them, every single one of them, would probably get a game in most teams in the UK these days. But the subject of this piece, Alan Gulzine, of course, a true Scotland legend and a real world-class player. Well, that's about it for this week, boys and girls. There will be no TWM for the next couple of weeks as we take a Christmas break. We will be back in January, of course, with some of the most interesting characters surrounding the game and, and hopefully following up on the lack of response to our request for comment on strike liability, as well, of course, as all the latest off-the-field controversies. It now remains only for me to thank the wonderful Dave Scott for his contribution to this week's TWM and to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I'm off to fix my broken throat. Have a great Christmas and bye for now.